I V M. We hear that nationalism is on rise in various parts of the world, including India. But what is nationalism really? How did it come about in Europe, and do we really see the same kind of nationalism in India? Is Tamil or Kannada nationalism the same as, say, German nationalism a couple of centuries ago? We also hear about how nationalism is in conflict with liberalism, but could it be in conflict with tradition as well? Dr. Ashwin Kumar joins us on this episode of the Pragati Podcast to unpack nationalism, language, and identity. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics, and international relations. I'm your host, Pawan Shrinath. Our guest today is Dr. A. P. Ashwin Kumar, a senior fellow at the Center for Learning Futures at the University of Ahmedabad. He has a PhD in cultural studies from Manipal University, and will soon be publishing a book on nationalism and linguistic identity. We'll start our conversation with Ashwin after a short break. Advertising is dead. Yep, you heard me right. Advertising is dead. We're all in the content business now. Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc., etc. It's all content, and we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet. We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now, but rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content, and the whole goddamn circus surrounding it. Tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch, and this is my new podcast, Advertising is Dead. Hi, I'm Pawan Shrinath, and welcome to the Pragati Podcast. Hi, Ashwin. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much, uh, Ashwin. Um, today, I want to talk to you about nationalism, you know, language, identity, and other things associated with it. And we are living in a time where, uh, at least, the discourse is such that nationalism is on the rise. You know, this this sort of globalization that we have seen over the last few decades. you know the domestic political forces in each country are changing people are looking inward and so on but even before we try to make some sense out of this i wanted to go back and get a sense of whether we have our historical understanding of nationalism right and how it came about so please tell me how to think about this more deeply from what i understand uh, modern nationalism more or less came about in europe maybe Uh, a couple of hundred years ago maybe in france especially in germany where sort of language became a rallying call a a locus of identity where you know people come together because they are german or because they are french and then there was this idea that if this uh, there is something called the german nation which all germans believe it that they are a part of then they're best governed by a state that coincides with the nation right as opposed to empires of the past where the people could have been whoever there was one uh, empire and you know uh, colonies and satraps and other things inside the empire so is this idea of european nationalism broadly correct and is this necessarily universally applicable good i think the general received story of nationalism that you just painted is broadly correct is it universally applicable most people think yes but supposing we were to ask a slightly 
different question. We were to ask. Until about the 18th century, the world did not know of ideas of nationalism, linguistic identity, uh, and so on and so forth. Somewhere during the 18th century and thereafter, these ideas came to the fore and today they have become ordinary reality. Most people think if you're born, you're already born into a nation. You might not have one or the other feature necessary to make you a full human being, but you will definitely have a nationality tagged with your birth. That's the, the level at which this has become a commonplace idea. So while language was there for a very long time, I mean, written language goes back 4,000 odd years, spoken language might go back, I don't know, 15,000 years, some number like that. So, but language was not necessarily uh, something that people sort of gravitated around or nations, but not something that people gravitated around. Yeah, that's that's the correct way of putting it. Uh, not only language, there may be uh, nationalisms defined on the lines of race, but racial differences have existed for many thousands of years. There may be nationalisms defined around the idea of religion. Religions have existed for a few thousand years. But nationalism is a new entrant. The first question I would ask is, if there's a new entrant, what is this beast? Rather than assume that we know what this beast is, going by its own self-description, and then give a causal story about how did it come to be. Uh, in fact, my um, grouse with a whole lot of nationalism scholarship that I have uh, produced is to say that while they're very, very sensitive to the particularities of nationalist discourses, ideas, and the history of the phenomenon, they seem to have completely overlooked the very obvious fact that nationalism is a historical phenomenon that came about in the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries and not before that. How would you explain this newness? What was it different from? And how do you conceptually get a grasp of it? Prior to going and giving a causal narrative about how this particular set of things came to be. Here, if I may, one of the things I've heard that made nationalism possible was that, uh, one, you had the Gutenberg press that was invented, and uh, there was also a standardization of language that happened where, and you had the ability for people who speak or read the same language to access the same information, which was perhaps not true before the 18th or 17th century, right? I mean, like even today you look at Indian languages where, you know, it's not like a, a regional state language or so. The dialect spoken by each household is different. You know, you take Tulu, for example, might vary from family to family. You know, there are uh, offshoots of Tamil and Karnataka, which will vary from family to family. So in that sense, maybe language was not a unifying factor because language was not one thing to everyone. Uh, so... Is that a sufficient explanation for how, um, you know, European nationalism came about? That's one of the explanations offered by theorists of uh, hmm. European nationalism. But increasingly, I think uh, the evidence to the contrary 
uh, is growing. Okay. Um, one of the significant pieces of evidence, uh, I feel, is the one we have uh, coming from the magisterial, probably, work of um, the Chicago Sanskritist, uh, Professor Sheldon Pollock, um, his book, The Language of Gods in the World of Men, try to, tries to paint a picture of how way back in the first millennium, cosmopolitan languages like Latin, Sanskrit, Arabic probably, had created fairly unified elite culture across vast swaths of uh, the territory that they were present in. And this elite culture, remember, it might not be the era of the printing press, but the uniformity, the commonality of the elite culture is nothing less than astounding. Um, so this would be like one culture across Christendom, you know, some commonality across yeah. Christendom. Yeah. And here in India, we have so many instances of someone doing a Sanskrit treatise in Kerala, and then within one generation, somebody has done a commentary on it in Kashmir. Right. So, so yeah. there is some commonality. Yeah. Uh, just to add a quaint historical detail to that, uh, you said Kerala and Kashmir. Uh, Professor Pollock says the spread of the Sanskrit cosmopolitan world was from Kandahar in Afghanistan to East Java in Indonesia. Right. So, so remember that in today's terms would be probably a better, the, the bigger half of Asia. Right. And, and some people's dreams of an Akhand Bharat also. So. Also, <laughs> that's a different that. story. Now, the interesting thing is this. The ingredients for nationalism must be present here too. Mm. You would then say, probably you would want to object to this picture and say, no, this is too large a cosmopolitan world. You will need slightly smaller chunks. Mm. But you see, you have introduced an ad hoc Hypothesis. Of size. Of size. Hmm. I might then give you the example of China, which was probably unified uh, linguistically for large periods of time, which was probably of a manageable size for you to think of as a legitimate candidate for nationalism to have grown. But again, it doesn't you will have to now bring in more ad hoc elements. You may have to probably bring in ad hoc elements like, you know, one of the things that's necessary is the breakdown of traditional structures of kinship and the coming together of affiliative notions of kinship. That is, kinship not across bloodlines, but kinship based on certain common civic um, Shared ideas, shared, shared history, ideas. shared something. Shared. Hmm. Uh, shared some things which were only possible probably after the Industrial Revolution and the breakdown of the agricultural milieu of Europe. Right. But all of this is adding more and more ad hoc hmm. explanations rather than try and explain what would be unique to the imagination of a national community as against the imagination of community that might have existed in all other times. So, so this national community would... I mean, there was still this idea of, say, Christendom, 
right? And it wasn't just an idea in the abstract, but it was also sufficient to motivate people to go fight in the Crusades, yeah. right? Islam had the idea of the Ummah, right? And uh, in India, maybe it was not quite expressed in the same way, but there was this idea of a Bharatavarsha and Jambudvipa, at least a territorial sort of identity, right? That we live in Jambudvipa in the Indian subcontinent. So there was something there. But you're saying that when you talk about a national identity and national community, it goes several steps beyond this. It goes several steps beyond this. And there's a unique feature of nationalism that we need to account for when we are uh, raising these questions. The unique feature is something like this. Nationalism thinks of um, a people unified by certain ethnological principles like race language or something else as being a sovereign corporate unit. Right. Now, so the nation is always with the state or with some... It's either with the state or it's desirable that it finds a state. Right. Yeah. The destiny of the nation is in the state, in the achievement of a state. But whether you achieve a state or not, for whatever historical reasons you might fail to achieve a state, it doesn't take away from the fact that the people are a sovereign corporate unit. You're jeopardizing the destiny of that people by not granting them a legitimate state. This is the idea of nationalism. And the idea of national self-determination and so on. Exactly. Hmm. Now, this idea... So, just to um, clarify, when you talk about a sort of a national corporate body... The corporate body referenced means that the corporation as such has a goal and an agenda and will marshal all its various forces to drive that agenda, right? Whether it be, you know, the prosperity of its citizens or something else, sure. right? So that's what you, you mean sure. by that. Sure. So here is a corporate body. Now, this might not sound like a surprising feature because most nationalists talk about the nation in pretty much these terms, probably using or not using exactly the same words. But the contrast is what makes it illuminating. Mm -hmm. If you were to think of many traditional communities in India, any traditional community in India, you will notice that we don't speak about these communities in exactly this language. A particular caste group does not think of itself as a corporate body. It does not think of itself as carrying a historical covenant and geared towards achieving a certain goal. These ideas, well, these ideas may exist of late and people might want to talk in that language, say, for instance, of a Hindu corporate body and things like that. But you will notice that it sits very jarringly with our own traditional ways of going about the world. If you are a member of a particular caste, you're not a member of a corporate body as much as you're a follower of a particular set of traditions. Your relationship to another member of the same caste is not that both of you belong as equal members in a common body, but a relationship of familial familiarity where you can rest assured that the common points of reference for your life uh, are quite the same. Now, the demand that we have in our social life is the demand of common practices, common rituals, 
rather than calling it a demand i would say a feature a feature of our common life is commonality of practices and traditions but the normative requirement the normative demand or the normative expectation of nationalism is that you might be common because you're unified in a common body such bodies don't exist it's just that we have assumed somehow that these bodies exist it's the idea of nationalism bleeding into various other domains of our thinking now so going back to europe did that exist or did that get created uh such that people believed such that your national identity was sort of an integral part of the fabric of your um social life and how you deal with other people i think this goes to the heart of the problem in europe it did exist the moment i say that the next question would be where did the root model come from where is the root model for a corporate body unified by a covenant and oriented towards a goal well preeminently it's the christian church the christian church thinks of itself as a corporate body unified by a historical covenant and moving towards or oriented towards a common goal not for nothing is it one of the longest institutions in human history that's living and thriving even to this day all right now this idea is not simply a christian philosophical idea it is a social reality brought about by the historical forces uh, of which the church was a major player over the last couple of millennia uh, we may want to spend a little time on how exactly this movement how exactly the social change happened um so here uh, if i uh, i mean i mean these are fuzzy words but so sort of if we can say that christendom in, in itself was like maybe a proto nation of some sort with this the church being sort of a quasi state with sort of oriented this nation of people towards certain things yeah yeah okay yeah i think that's that's a good way of putting it there's a consequence of this um or probably even before we go into the consequences we should be able to uh, say a little bit about the history as to why this actually happens right professor s n balgangadhar who has uh, written extensively about this especially in his book uh, the heathen in his blindness uh, makes a very convincing case for how ancient christianity found itself in the roman world uh, the roman world was preeminently a world of traditions the legitimacy of a tradition is a function of its antiquity that tradition which is older which has been passed on by my forefathers is the more valuable tradition is the more valued tradition all right the jews in the roman empire could make some such claim to antiquity the christians were a new group obviously they couldn't make claims to antiquity but how would you make a claim to legitimacy in this world if you are not part of an antiquity or if you don't have an antiquity to fall back on right the christians made a very unique argument 
they said we are the true tradition we are the true religion if we are true and if truth is timeless we must also be from antiquity now this is an answer for which you don't have a game plan you can't respond to this coming from the traditional ways of operating no tradition claimed itself to be true it doesn't make sense to call a tradition true or false it makes sense to call a tradition ancient or not in fact that's exactly how we understand traditions in our own social life in this country uh, we always say this is an old tradition we never say this is a true tradition but but there i mean we do talk about the vedas in a slightly different way right in a a historical way in that you know the vedas are timeless they're timeless uh, they too. are you know they the shruti it's truth revealed the rest of it is tradition and all the trappings but we do a little bit of that here too. we need to we need to take the idea of truth seriously if we claim that something is true we are claiming that contrary narratives counter narratives different narratives than this one are false are false if not you're not using the word the concept truth in exactly the way that the christians are using it so it's a truth with a capital t it's a capital t truth mm-hmm. uh, or if you ask me uh, the only way in which the word the english word truth should be used right yeah now once this happens the the christian church sets itself on a dialectic as it were on 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 a on an inalienable unavoidable logic uh, that logic is to prove to show the primacy the revealed primacy of the truth of this religion and to ensure that this truth is accepted by different peoples of the world now why is this needed a tradition does not have an internal uh, demand for universalization a tradition is necessarily local i would be extremely uncomfortable if someone else starts following my tradition from tomorrow uh, i wouldn't have a problem but i wouldn't know what to do with this person right but if i know the truth for instance if i know that uh, evolution is the correct theory and creationism is the wrong theory i would insist i would in fact coerce you to believing in what i think is the truth i have a certain moral intellectual philosophical obligation to teach you what is the truth and to remove you from your falsehood so call this the cognitive coercion of truth right as a scientist you would have a cognitive coercion a responsibility for cognitively coercing your fellow citizens to the truth as a christian you would have the responsibility to cognitively coerce other people to believing in the truth this cognitive coercion is not a relevant factor for traditions at all in fact the opposite is the relevant factor which is distinction the capacity to distinguish between our traditions and your traditions our ways of going about the world and your ways of going about the world now 
which one is desirable for a better world right. uh, and things like that are questions we should keep at bay because mostly they're probably ill-formulated questions, um, at least as of now. But at least this distinction is something we can we okay. can work with. Yeah. So they had that and they had an apparatus to make yeah. that a reality. They had an apparatus to make that a reality and that apparatus made the fundamental Christian ideas into a general social reality by removing those markers by which you would recognize ordinary communities, natural communities. Uh, I'm not placing too much emphasis on the word natural because I'm aware that someone might want to say that no community is natural, but I would just want to use that word to differentiate between this very special case of community as seen by the Christian church and various other communities that we find around, various other traditions that we find around us. Now, beginning with the papal revolutions of about the 10th, 11th century, um, which has been documented beautifully by uh, the great legal historian Harold Berman in his book, uh, Law and Revolution, something irreversible happens in Europe, and that is communities which are organized around various different social aspects like different customs, different kinds of marital relations, different kinds of everyday norms and practices to orient your, yourself around the world. All of these, which are also the ways by which you can differentiate a community from another, all of these are made subservient to ecclesiastical law, to the law of the church. Um, the church says, in the beginning, in a case of conflict between multiple customary laws, the ecclesiastical law shall hold sway. But very soon the church says, the ecclesiastical law shall anyway hold sway if the customary laws are against the reason of God. Now, you might want to give a deep, thick, socio-historical uh, causal analysis for how and why these things happen. That may be necessary, but for our story for now, it's enough to know that such a thing happens. Such that by about the middle of the second millennium, by the beginning or the middle of the Middle Ages, we have a situation in Europe where communities are defined primarily as religious communities. And doctrinal aspects of the church also become the ways by which communities are differentiated, which means the multiple vectors by which communities work or just to capture that in a pity statement, the difference between two communities is not the same as the difference between two other communities. Communities are differently different. The church reduces all of this into a fairly structured system where you can talk about the differences between communities as differences in the specific beliefs of these communities. This, in a way, creates the groundwork for defining a community 
based on an idea which is external to logically prior to and chronologically outside of that particular community which means if i say that this is a protestant community and that's a catholic community what's the difference the, the difference between these two communities cannot be understood merely at some sociological level you can't say you know catholics uh, do things this way and protestants do things that way they go to these kind of churches and these people go to the other kind of churches these kind of sociological specifics will not sufficiently capture the difference between different religious communities you need to have a chronologically logically original point from where you can show the difference the difference is the difference in doctrinal belief all right yeah and the doctrinal belief is something that is not empirical it's theological that is there's a theological vanishing point from where you will have to explain empirical differences of different communities yeah this is the root model for nationalism to take root and grow if you notice the difference between different nations cannot be addressed cannot be captured by showing the empirical differences between different uh, groups of people there's a lot of uh, literature both serious and not so serious uh, which tries to revel in celebrate or um, criticize the many differences in the different nations so oh, the germans do it this way and the french do it that way but these are largely only uh, national stereotypes that we all have they're good or bad and useful or useless for whatever purposes but the difference between uh, the german nation and the french nation cannot be captured at this level it will only lead you to more and more trivial results the essential difference has to be captured by a non empirical criterion the non empirical criterion almost like a transcendental criterion is that the german nation is fulfilling a unique destiny of the german people now you might wonder what is this unique destiny and how the hell did you come to know it as the german nation and how am i to believe that that's the unique destiny now clearly these are wrong questions to ask a nationalist because it is super abundantly clear that a self evident truth it's, it's it's a self evident truth within the universe of nationalism that such a historical destiny is carried as a great moral burden by every single nation now this is pure double distilled unadulterated theological idea without this you can't think of nationalism now here comes but how did this get even transplanted from sort of religion to say a language group yeah that's that's a good question um it's not a direct transplantation but if you have noticed in the story that we are trying to sketch christian ideas christian themes get secularized that is they lose their christian specificity but retain the structure of the question yeah in fact uh, the person i mentioned in the beginning of the stock uh, professor balagangadhara calls this secularization um, i think we need to spend a minute on this term because for most people both scholarly and otherwise 
secularization is the term for the gradual recession of religious forms of everyday living from the social world right. people stop going to the church the church starts stops becoming being an important institution people become atheists and so on and so forth uh, but that's how the christian world understands uh, itself if you really notice what's happening christian themes lose their christian specificity but retain the christian structure and start spreading as secular themes as empirical themes about human reality and that is the process of secularization okay now there's a certain secularization that happens across different domains in europe in relation to this particular idea we may have to trace a small um piece of philological history um europe started discovering different cultures by about the late middle ages to the early modern age it needed a story to fit these differences into a familiar grid the best grid they had was the grid of what's called by thomas trotman um the mosaic ethnology mosaic ethnology basically said uh, coming from the old biblical story that the world was peopled by the seed of noah uh, he had all these sons each son went away to a different part of the world and uh, begat his his nation his progeny were were the nation that people the different parts of the world today so there was ham and there was jafet and there was someone else and the third and the fourth now that is what explains the fact that all people that's what explains the fact that all people have religion but they have different religions that's also what explains the fact that some people only some people have the true religion and many others have its false variants well for a christian right idea now one of the things christian early christian missionaries asked uh, was who are these people that we are encountering how did they come here uh, do they have the kind of common ideas that we have and how are they related to us the answer they gave were hopelessly biblical going by the mosaic ethnology tree uh, they said oh the indians are our cousins by i don't know 100 or 200 link right uh, and this is where we lost uh, touch with them and they have now fallen into this falsehood uh, our responsibility being that we have to resuscitate them back to true religion by various ways by about the 18th century this unabashedly mosaic uh, ethnological tree started getting questioned because this was also the time when newer supposedly scientific secular uh, variants of the story started getting circulated one of those stories was that there's no way you can go about peddling biblical stories all over the world you need a scientific way of understanding uh, racial cultural differences one of the ways by which we can understand where are these people from and who are these people that is are these a nation 
where is this nation from, what historical destiny are they carrying, is to use not the mosaic ethnology, but a philological ethnology. That is, to see not the links of religion, but the links of languages. Right. This is one way they thought, European scholars thought, you could rebuild an ethnological tree. So you go back to Proto-Indo-European and then split yeah. off yeah. to all the European languages, the Indian yeah. languages and so yeah. on. Yeah. So in a sense, you're, you're saying that there is a link between, say, the rise of German nationalism and the likes of Max Müller and others coming to India to study yeah. uh, Indian yeah. uh, language and yeah. and then find that you know, there are lots of similarities and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So, fact, so sort of interest in language also sort of exploded around that time? Around that time. Um, the preparation for that was already uh, there beginning from the Protestant Revolution where Luther had said the text, the word of the God is where the truth is. So we should be focusing on the word and not on the institution of the church. Now translate that into the language that we are trying to speak here. The Protestant Revolution basically brings religion, Christian religion, or it boils down Christian religion to a set of ideas that can be expressed in words, in particular languages. Which means, in the post-Protestant world, language is bearing the truth of, carrying the truth of religion. Prior to that, the Christian church as an institution did that. Right. Yeah. The With secretive languages and so on. Like Latin was not accessible to uh, everyone. Uh, Latin was not accessible to anyone and therefore also the, the obverse of it would be to say that was not an important uh, way by which the religious community was defined. The religious community was defined through church rituals, the institutional hierarchy of the church and so on and so forth. Um, what's not accessible is not socially relevant, right? in a way of speaking. Hmm. Now, the, the Protestant idea has already created this deeper engagement with language. That is also the time when the German Romanticists start exploring language as this thing with great historical density. It is not simply a medium of communication or a system of rules but it is something which is a historical object to be studied in time because they, different languages that is, give you a picture of the history of, of mankind. In fact, Sheldon Pollock himself uh, evocatively talks about uh, De Valgari Loquentia, um, a medieval work by Dante, where he, for the first time probably, starts discussing the idea of the vernacular language as something that's rooted in the history of a people, which to this day is the way in which we speak about language and nation, whether it's in Tamil Nadu or it is in Scotland. This is an idea which begins somewhere in the Middle Ages with 
with Dante and his his predecessors. Now, already then the the Romantic, the German Romantic movement has created this investment, this historical investment in language, created what you could call a deep language, yeah, language as something which has a historical record, an ethno-historical record, almost like a fossil bone. And onto it is mapped the colonial idea of where do we go find the roots of these different people and these different nations that we are finding around us. The question was waiting for the answer because the answer was what brought the question about in the first place. They come together. By then you have a fairly garden variety theory, rough and dirty, but workable enough to say a language and a people come together. The problem is not only that language and people come together. The problem is even deeper. That you think of different cultures as different people. That is, by people I mean nation. You right. think of you think of the different communities that you see in the world or different agglomerates of different communities that you see in the world as unique individual nations. We did not see communities and people as nations. You might say we had some notion of Bharat and Bharatvarsha and all of that, which is a broad category for some kind of a geocultural space where common practices right. hold sway. But this notion that individuals in that community, in that territory, in that linguistic group are unified as this historical sovereign entity is, is an idea that doesn't exist in most other cultures. It's an idea we have borrowed from this history. The problem is today when we speak about our past, we invariably project this idea back and try to see a nation uh, that is a people unified as a body. Anybody who criticizes this idea uh, has to receive flack uh, because uh, most people think uh, you're not understanding the commonalities that existed. Didn't we have a common set of Vedas? Don't we uh, worship the same gods? Don't we have the same kinds of rituals irrespective of local differences? Yes. This is a space which has been um, not unified as much as worked on by so many traditions over so many uh, centuries that there are many commonalities here. It's, it's a common culture. But none of these traditions have talked about either political, social or moral good, uh, the achievement of all of this as dependent on us having a notion of a unified social body. That is what comes from the idea of uh, nationalism. Ashwin, let's take a quick break and come back. And I mean, now that you've painted this picture of how European nationalism came about, maybe we can spend the second half talking about uh, how relevant this idea would be for, say, Indian nationalism, regionalism, and more. Sure. Hey everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IBM Podcast Network. If you aren't following us on social media, why aren't you? Please do, it's very important. 
We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Storytel and Intel. I also just wanted to add a brief note to our listeners. Uh, we've recently changed some of our show's hosting platforms, and if you're having any issues with your subscriptions, please do resubscribe to the shows and everything should work fine from there. We have a little bit of a announcement to make. Our Kannada podcast, Thala Harata, turns 50 episodes old this week. Alok Prasanna Kumar and Saryu Natarajan of the Ganatantra podcast joined Pawan for a three-episode special as they discussed the CAA, NRC, and the freedom to protest in episodes 50, 51, and 52. So if you speak Kannada, why aren't you listening to that show? Also on Cyrus Says this week, Cyrus is joined by stand-up comedian and winner of the Mrs. India Earth pageant, Deepa Javeri. They talk about what goes behind the scenes at a beauty contest, how she entered comedy at a late stage in life, and how her family views her career choices. On Advertising is Dead, Varun sits down with longtime friend, photographer, and filmmaker Avinash Jai Singh. They talk about Avinash's process while on shoots, how he likes working with smaller teams if possible, and how advertising has changed for filmmakers and photographers in this internet age. On Pulyabazi, Pranay and Saurabh are joined by Kushal Bhagia, CEO of First Check. They take a look at the world of venture capital and discuss how a VC firm works. On 9XM Soundcast, Eva is joined by composer duo Salim and Suleiman. They talk about how to produce a great Bollywood score and their upcoming projects. On Simplified, Chuck, Shriket and Tony continue with part 3 of the 2019 recap. Join them as they talk about climate activism, China and India's political landscapes. On The Habit Coach, Ashton talks about how we as a society have lessened twisting and turning of our spine as a whole and why it's important to do so. On Lit Nama, Lakshmi is joined by spoken word poet Jackie Tucker, who talks about the expanding scene of spoken word today, the impact it creates and the monetization required for these new art forms. On Hedges and Sludges, host DJ Ashwin and Varun talk about the India vs Sri Lanka match in Guwahati, four-day test matches, the Crick Info Cricketer of the Year, Hardik Pandya's engagement and a whole lot more. On what a player Siddharth and Mikhail run down their sports predictions for this year, that is 2020. Listen in for educated predictions in the world of cricket, tennis, football, and darts. And with that, let's get you back to your show. Welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. I'm Pavan Srinath and I'm here with Ashwin Kumar talking about nationalism, identity, uh, language, and a lot more. Uh, so in the first half, we mostly spoke about how we contextualized European nationalism and how it came about and how the church as a corporate entity had an important role to play and sort of language becoming a locus uh, of, of nationalism because of a variety of factors. So now, if we come to India and Indian nationalism, which, I don't know, you can call it 150 years old, 100 years old, it depends. Um, we don't have a common language. Uh, we don't have, I mean, in either Hinduism in India or in Islam in India, you don't have that kind of a, you know, centralized structure. And there is no sort of goal towards anything, right? Um, how did then this national identity come about? How did Indian nationalism become a thing? And is it the same kind of a beast as, uh, say, German nationalism? How did Indian nationalism become a thing is probably the best way of asking that question. I'm assuming the word thing is always in inverted quotes when used in <laughs> sentences like this in English. <laughs> That's not even a thing we say, right? <laughs> uh, now, here is where there is a huge contradiction, I would say, or even some kind of a confusion, if not a contradiction. In a whole lot of scholarship on nationalism in India, at one level, uh, we want to say that nationalism is an artificial construct. Books have been written saying nation without nationalism for Europe. And there have been books written 
for India, uh, saying nationalism without a nation. People like Geolosius and various other scholars have uh, talked about this. Now, on the one hand, we seem to say that the idea of a nation does not track any empirical reality in India, which means we would want to say as an implication that nationalism is actually a way of talking. A way of talking which does not track things All right. on the ground. This is not me saying it. This is the general consensus uh, of scholarship. On the other hand, when we discuss nationalism, we seem to forget this scruple and start talking like there is nationalism in India. Now, I would say if you have raised such a fundamental question about the status of an entity, whether or not there is a nation in India, and if such a nation probably does not exist, what kind of a thing is nationalism, then you may have to spend some time figuring out exactly what you call it, the nature of the beast. Um, if you don't mind me slipping in a technical term that, that philosophers love to use, um, what's the ontology of the subject? <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't like those terms, but... Nature uh, of the beast is easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I would always love to ask what's the nature of the beast. Here is what I think is the nature of the beast. When we talk about nationalism, what are we talking about? We are talking about a particular way of representing our past, our communities, and the relationship of our communities with our past, and the relationship of communities with other communities. So nationalism is a variety of talk. Again, uh, if the word talk doesn't sound um, grand enough, this is what the scholars say, nationalism is a discourse. Right. Again, we'll stick to the word talk. What kind of a talk is nationalism? Already we have agreed that, or we have suggested that it is not a talk which describes the social reality of this country. It is a talk which reflects the social aspirations, projections, projects of the nationalist colonial elite of this country. A project they have inherited from colonialism itself. The project is to discover the unique communal strength, common strength of the Indian nation, if at all it exists. And the project is to discover its unique historical destiny. Put this way, to today's ears at least, this project seems idiosyncratic. Why would you talk about the unique historical destiny of the Indian nation. We are okay talking about national development goals and GDP and things like that. But if I were to say the unique historical destiny of this nation, 
then you would say, oh, this is gobbledygook. But then that might have been gobbledygook even in Europe at some point, right? But it had the church history and then somebody constructed it. Exactly. So is it that it's not been constructed sufficiently in India or is that just the basement doesn't exist so it's very, very hard to do so? It's gobbledygook wherever it is. But in Europe, I could show you how this comes into being. In contrast, the claim is if those conditions don't exist, this idea doesn't make sense. Mm. So in a way, we are just saying you remove nationalism from the picture. Just look at the difference between a religious culture like Europe, which is secularizing, and a traditional culture like India. Uh, you will see that these are different cultures. Nationalism is what complicates this simple picture by creating some equation between uh, these two cultures. There is a nation and here is a nation, so on and so forth. So, uh, let me go back. I, I, I know that uh, he's not necessarily the most scholarly of people, but Yuval Noel Harari has written some very popular books recently. And one of the ways in which he looks at this idea of nation is about cooperation, right? About you need to invent certain stories and myths in, or, in order to get people to cooperate at a larger and larger scales. Uh, and so if we both believe that we are Indian and therefore, uh, you know, on the same team and pursuing it, so you can get us to cooperate much better and do something. So to that extent, do you think the Indian, early Indian nationalists were able to create enough of an idea of India for at least the elite or for a certain set of people, such that we could think of forming a state and think of governing ourselves, even if the, the those are colonially inherited, enough to sort of continue to do that, right? I mean, the wonderful thing about India is that though we've had separatism in a few places, we've still by and large stayed together for a significant duration of time, at a time when a lot of the post-colonial world has been in turmoil, right? I mean, uh, I mean, Yugoslavia was considered a nation at one point, and, you know, I mean, these stories of how they didn't, they couldn't imagine the Indian state surviving for more than 20 years, but Yugoslavia doesn't exist today. India is thriving. Uh, so do you think something was constructed sufficiently such that the Indian nation state could sort of perform? So here is the issue. If you were to think of this purely as a strategy, you have a large geographical entity and one government. You need to create some sense of stakes and belonging and people such that you can run this government without people uh, going at each other's throats. And you create a fiction, a story, where all of us agree that this story is good and this story is true and therefore we are running with the Indian nation. I'm fine with it. But what are we saying? We are saying uh, a billion people have been told a story in the last 50 years. And for whatever convenient reasons, we seem to like the story. And that's it. We could have given another story, probably. Uh, and there are people trying to give other stories there are, now. There are people trying to give other stories. That story might win over someday right. or may not. Uh, and if it does win over, uh, then uh, that's the story from that day. Now, are you going to agree that these stories track social realities? You would not want to make that claim. Right. Um, stories don't track social realities. Stories are useful. They're useful for organizing action. Maybe that's what they're doing. But 
the problem with explaining nationalism in this way the possibility that the nationalist story might have worked is there and i i would probably grant it its due but the explanation that this is what causally explains nationalism is an issue because this is a post facto explanation right you have a political model called nationalism it's come to be historically now retrospectively you're trying to see what social agenda or what social need might have driven people to invent such a model it's almost like saying the silicon chip was invented because people wanted to make friends on facebook right <laughs> right fair enough there's something there's something wrong in the direction of causality in such such arguments which in fact becomes uh, far worse when you look at some other so called scientific studies of nationalism which tries to pin it down all the way down to your neurology you know there is something it seems in your neurological structure which makes you get affiliated into other uh, innate tribalism of some sort huh. yeah this is historically very lazy uh, although it sounds very uber scientific i don't think that's that's the way one should really be thinking about the way human action has been thought about and organized in different cultures genes have a role to play but uh, we should let them do their job <laughs> <laughs> so so now what does this mean for indians today right so if there are at least a few people trying to build this nationalism project so one is we are the government of india we are sort of governed by one state we are a billion people who you know want development prosperity poverty reduction blah 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 and then we are going down this path that's one but then there are people who are working actively in various forms to promote the idea of nationalism what kind of conflicts arise from that can can that strengthen this alignment of everyone towards these common goals that we that i just mentioned or does it create conflict i think nationalism is necessarily conflicting uh, it's not by happenstance that nationalism is very belligerent there's a reason for why it has to be belligerent because it mobilizes social forces uh, for a particular uh, historical agenda we'll look at that in a minute uh, but before that let's just lay down for today's context if you're an indian for instance what are the two inheritances that have shaped you you have a modern inheritance of uh, a constitutional democracy scientific pursuits and so on and so forth on the other hand you also have another inheritance coming from your family and your traditions your ritual traditions and so on and so forth these are the two different important sources of a meaningful life uh, in today's world it's reasonable to expect that we should be protecting both of these on the one hand the modern political scientific project best captured in liberal democracy and science and the other are traditional uh, sources of knowledge 
nationalism claims that it champions both. The historical record of nationalism shows that it's injurious precisely to these two projects, which are very important projects of the contemporary world. How does it do it? Well, it makes scientific knowledge a handmaiden of some kind of nationalist goals. Okay. Could you give an example maybe? The worst example is using your military not for self-defense uh, but for national assertion. The most complicated example is using the rhetoric of scientific research not for developing a culture of scientific research and perpetuating it, but for a peculiar nationalistic self-determination in the international arena. That's on the one hand. The case of traditions is even more complex. Most traditions are now justified even sometimes by the practitioners of those traditions, not in terms of alternative pursuits of the good, but as conduits to realizing a national unity or a national uh, destiny. So you're supposed to be uh, practicing certain rituals, learning the Vedas probably, learning Sanskrit, not because here are alternative pursuits of the good, but because these are essentially national patrimonies. You should be proud of them. You should be following them. And this goes back to even the early attempts at nation building in India, right? I mean, um, Tilak starting the, this idea of uh, Ganesh Chaturthi being this grand procession that sort of goes through the street, that wasn't necessarily a big part of tradition, right? I mean, chariot festivals were always a thing, but Ganesh Chaturthi was almost uh, an invented um, festival to get uh, to mobilize large numbers of people towards something. So, so again, you're not doing Ganesh Chaturthi because you're worshipping Ganesha and thinking that that's a good way to live life, but it's because... Yeah. You want to be a part of the same nation and something else. Yeah. So look at what's happened to our traditions. A tradition is no more an alternative path to pursue. It is only a patrimony to protect. Now, imagine if that happens to physics. It's no more an intellectual path of pursuit, but a patrimony to protect against everybody who hates physics for whatever reasons. Now, it's quite not the physics that I and you and I would want to have, right? Or we would not want to live in a right. world of that kind. I was the other day very intrigued by a piece of news uh, from Karnataka where the government claimed that from now on it's going to celebrate Shankara Jayanti, birthday of the philosopher Shankaracharya. Many uh, people I know who are also devotees, followers of uh, the Shankara tradition, 
um, were very happy and felt someone had listened to their voice. Um, they were jubilant because finally they and their community have a say in the public culture of this state. I was quite taken aback uh, because I don't know quite what this means because imagine in most traditional families uh, a figure like Shankaracharya would be considered an avatar uh, of uh, Lord Shiva in his form as Dakshinamurti. The same kind of rituals that you perform to Dakshinamurti is also performed to Shankara. Um, there are certain Vedantic ideas that you pick up, you learn, you study. But in this new avatar, I suspect, someone's going to stand on a podium next to a bus stand in a district headquarters town and give a speech organized by the district administration of the government and say how Shankaracharya is the person responsible for keeping this country united against many centrifugal forces. He was the person who brought in scientific rationality and hard logic into this country. And he's the custodian of our traditions and why we should all be following in his footsteps. Oh boy, this is not the Shankaracharya that is being um, followed devoutly in many of our homes. This is going to distort our access to our traditions. This is going to make Shankaracharya uh, some kind of a Napoleon Bonaparte or even Bismarck. Yeah? I'm not sure at the end of that process the Shankara who is being um, followed as a guru in the Vedantic traditions of this country. I don't think this Shankara will survive the mobilized state-sponsored Shankara. So the nationalized Shankara will have will not be the same as the traditional Shankara almost. Yes, I would want to actually make it more prophetic. If the nationalized Shankara will come to be, then the traditional Shankara will not be. That's exactly what's happened with most of our traditions, if you look at it. They have not been ruined by someone attacking it from the outside, but simply by them becoming intellectually mute. You don't know how to access... Um, in fact, a couple of my friends, um, Duncan Jalki and uh, various others, have tried to develop this argument about the Vachana movement in, in Karnataka. Now, if you notice today, abundantly, super abundantly, every single intellectual uh, or non-intellectual layman uh, thinks of the Vachana tradition as a social reform movement, much like Martin Luther King or the early socialists of uh, Europe and uh, M. N. Rai and Lohia <laughs> or even Ambedkar. So, so the Vachana movement of the 12th century was a precursor to all of these social movements of um, today. And so they see social criticism, social revolution, social regeneration as the goal of those traditions. They completely distort the nature of those traditions. They were adhyatmic traditions, primarily. But they were trying to talk about the relationship um, 
between human experience, transcendence, uh, action, exactly like various other Vedantic and non-Vedantic traditions in this country have been talking about for hundreds of years. It's been an important quest for many intellectual traditions of this country. For some reason, or well, for obvious reasons of the nationalization of traditions, that entire access to a knowledge tradition has been blocked, has been pushed to the back. And this completely unrecognizable and bizarre notion of, of a social revolution has taken over all picturization of the 12th century Vachana um, culture. This is a huge intellectual, cultural loss. The most serious aspect of this is no one recognizes this as a loss. No one recognizes this as a loss. Yeah? We are all very happy to participate in the perpetuation of these pictures. Uh, no one's against the vachanas, in fact. If somebody said, you know, from tomorrow, no vachanas, uh, that's a different thing. Everybody wants the vachanas. Everybody wants it to be in every single curriculum. Everyone wants to talk about it. You quote it ad infinitum, ad nauseum, in every single public forum. But you quote it in a particular nationalized manner, completely oblivious to the fact that it had another important intellectual function to fulfill in this society. The same fate that the Vachanas have suffered have been uh, suffered by many other traditions. Many more traditions are going to fall under the, this bus, the nationalism bus. So here, you know, one of my thoughts is, one is the involvement of the state, right? Especially a... Uh, a state like India where, you know, we are avowedly secular, I mean, there's no national uh, religion. Uh, one is the state getting involved. The other is sort of people who see themselves as nation builders getting involved in this, right? I mean, so uh, those would be two different levels of this happening, right? One is, you know, uh, a local government or someone else coming and saying, I will do a, you know, a Shankara day or something like that. The other is sort of traditions being co-opted by a larger uh, set of people with a different agenda. So both happens or, and like... Yeah, I think both happen, but... I mean, getting the state involved is the ultimate problem to me. But if other nationalists, I mean, try to do it, I mean, there is always co-option of cultures. I mean, all of, that does happen organically a lot of the time, right? I mean... The uh, the, the co-option of cultures is really not a big mm. issue, I would say, because it happens. Mm. It's in the nature of traditions that they come together, they can be used for whatever ends. And the and meanings so change. The meanings this, change right. and all of this. Um, the only question is whether conditions for their perpetuation are being undercut or not. And the problem with the nationalist state is that with completely good intentions you're nevertheless undercutting the conditions under which uh, traditions will thrive. Now, uh, there's something else that has to be uh, said about, about the state, uh, the modern state particularly. 
Now, it's in the nature of nationalist politics. It's in the nature of politics, but it's definitely in the nature of nationalist politics to mobilize and radicalize every single aspect of social life. Yeah? Uh, the moment you want to say that you're going to create some notion of a substantive egalitarian system, you have said, you have passed your judgment on existing society as in need of radical repair. This argument is most often made in the name of a nation. It's the nation which is the aggrieved party uh, to correct which, to repair the grievance, uh, you have to now radically, socially reconstruct your traditions and your society. At some level, it sounds like a lofty dream. At another level, this is at the root of state-sponsored social violence in every single context in the modern world. The social reform agenda of the modern progressive nationalist state is something we are better being wary of. Instead, most of our progressive, uh, intellectually sophisticated and nuanced talk, for some reason, celebrates this. We are, we are always celebrating the overreach of the state in the social world. I'm intrigued because most of us who celebrate this are also the people who celebrate um, or who glorify the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights in the United Constitution, United States um, Constitution, which says Congress does not have the right to make a law on, which means that the Congress does not have right to make a law which compromises the basic liberties of the people or something like that. So here in India, even the constitution becomes problematic, right? Because the constitution uh, and the writers of the constitution take on the mandate of social revolution. Exactly. And rather than say something like the American constitution, which is actually very, very conservative. Exactly. Right? I mean, it only confers rights to white men you know, back in the day, and it's society then which slowly reforms and then that gets reflected in yeah. uh, law yeah. uh, rather than here where sort of you want to reform society by fiat just by writing the law. Yeah. And whereas, so sort of the state is supposed to be subservient to the society and instead it sort of becomes exactly on top, comes on top of the exactly. society. I think, I think you nailed it. Um, although most of us complain that the state and politics in India uh, is very lethargic, my complaint is just the opposite. We have an extremely revolutionary state. Um, thank God the rest of them are lethargic. The state machinery is lethargic. Uh, well, that's for a joke. But, <laughs> but the revolutionary state in this country has trampled upon certain fundamental liberties of people, groups, societies, traditions, so on and so forth all in the name of a nation seeking um, some destiny of egalitarian justice. Now, it's important that there be no unjust practices, there be no irrational inequalities, but that is mobilized by nationalism for all kinds of radical 
social revolutionary agendas. It's, it's very hard to countenance this because these arguments are being made in the name of the loftiest progressive liberal goals. And you don't have a leg to stand on if you want to uh, oppose uh, these ideas. In fact, that's where the contrast that you very rightly made about um, the American and the Indian constitutions uh, come in. I just want to push that contrast a little bit um, to say that some of the unpalatable elements of the American constitution that you mentioned, like giving voting rights in that time and age to particular social groups, that only shows that the errors were con historically contingent. Yeah? The document by its nature is correct. The principle of the document is correct. There are historically contingent reasons by which mistakes creep in. Uh, one of those errors was that you thought only these people, the white males, counted as citizens and not the rest. And well, through a historical process, you correct those errors. The Indian constitution is not of that kind. The Indian constitution, its overarching mandate that it gives itself is not something of a contingent error. It is built into the basic structure of this document itself, which means there is a mandate, a legitimate mandate for the state and politics in the name of state power to relentlessly revolutionize social relations. A whole lot of the violence that, uh, the social violence, both apparent and the underlying tensions, I think can be traced back to this, this original desire to revolutionize what you think of as a backward, inegalitarian, oppressive social structure. And even if all those things are true, the change might have to come from within for it to be meaningful and sustainable and not very violent. Yeah, which means you cannot, and this is, this is the great conservative creed, right? You cannot change society by fiat because society is not a place for one hierarchy or one hegemony. Society is a place for multiple hierarchies and multiple hegemonies. And um, it can only be done in a, in a dialectical process. Um, you might say, so what? Once you know something is right and something is wrong, shouldn't you remove what's wrong by, by fiat? Yes, but can we be as minimal as possible in the removal of that, that wrong? Uh, are you even careful when you're trying to um, remove that wrong? Or are you doing some kind of a carpet bombing on, on society? Right. So if I am reading this right, uh, the nationalist project not only endangers liberty, it will also endanger tradition. Right. And that's not usually, usually we see it as, you know, nationalism versus liberalism. But you're saying that it also causes injury to tradition. Exactly. And so if you are a traditionalist, then you should be worried about nationalism. Exactly. Rather than be a champion of nationalism, which is what a lot of people today are, right? Who are very traditional in uh, their outlook and they love the idea of 
nationalism in one way or the other or some version of nationalism yeah and that that there is a deep uh contradiction that that lies buried within yeah we have done exactly what the indian farmer has done sold your produce to the one who gives you a little more money uh than the i don't know cooperative farming society you have without knowing that in the long run this is the guy who is going to cut your throat um i mean that's actually a poignant note to end on but i just wanted to continue a little bit and uh, ask for your thoughts on language based nationalism and subnationalism that seems to happen in india right i mean we talk about tamil nationalism or kannada nationalism i don't know if kannadigas amount to a nation uh, that's one question but we see this sort of linguistic identity very very strongly in indian politics right how do you think that comes about uh, is it as sort of thick as say german nationalism and so on or is it something very different if you notice in india mostly language politics is a proxy for various claim making okay yeah no one is interested apart from some poets probably and you know all these um, slightly abstract thinkers um, no one is interested in thinking of kannada speaking people as a nation everyone's interested in saying how do we get jobs uh, how do we get the river water to not go from here to there or how do we ensure that our the public schools don't close down because they were vernacular medium schools and so on and so forth some of these interests are legitimate uh, the interest that you might have if you are in the river uh, the upstream uh, riverine basin uh, where you would want to have more water for yourself is a legitimate interest i mean it may be a fair interest or an unfair interest but it's a legitimate interest uh it's probably in somebody's interest if not in the parents or the teachers interests to say that you know we should teach children uh the basic education they should have it in their mother tongue i don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea but i think it's a it's a legitimate claim uh it may be a wrong claim or it may be a right claim but it's a legitimate claim it's it's reasonable to have that claim any number of these claims may be reasonable legitimate or not in the modern world for some reason to mobilize state power to do this you need a proxy and we use language and linguistic nationalism as a proxy in fact someone was recently telling me about a book i forget the title uh, where uh, the author argues that the difference in the developmental indices for south indian states and north indian states uh, can be explained as a function of the presence or absence of linguistic identity movements linguistic identity movements and political parties based on these linguistic identity movements could take political mobilization very deep into the communities and demand uh, fruits of uh, the national kitty Uh, for various developmental activities and because of a certain um, combative relationship with various other subnationalities or what have you make a more competitive bid and use of uh, their resources which is not something that existed in the north 
uh, Indian states and therefore they fell behind in developmental uh, history. So there was also one was language-based mobilization, which I guess uh, Tamil Nadu is the exemplar. The other is also perhaps large caste group-based mobilization, which is also reasonably successful in the southern Indian states, right? The Wakalegas and uh, Virashaivas and others working towards sort of group rights. So this is not about a nation at all. This is about people batting for group rights in sort of a larger slice of the pie, perhaps. And it's just sort of group politics and identity politics rather than something that gets elevated to the level of nationalism. Is that fair? Yeah. So at the end of the day, that's what you can say, right? You can say nationalism or uh, what we are calling group rights, linguistic nationalism. All of these are mobilization tools uh, to speak a particular language uh, which the modern developmental state can understand. What's the logic of the modern developmental state? The louder the voice, the bigger the pie. Right. Yeah. Now, anything that can get your voice to be louder is a good, good tool. If it's language, it's good. If it's something else... I'm sure in the northeastern states it's not language but uh, something else. In Kashmir it might be some third thing and somewhere else it might be a fourth thing. A coherent loud voice. But a coherent loud voice does not explain social realities of the country. And this is the distinction we need to uh, maintain. That is, nationalism both in its linguistic variety and various other varieties, is a preeminent case of deployment. By deployment, we mean a way by which you can use an idea to make a bargain. To get caught in the deployment and assume that it also reflects certain larger social realities is a classic trick of nationalism that we have fallen prey to. Ashwin, thank you so much. So there is this idea of nationalism which, as you say, may not be as deeply embedded in our social reality in India uh, as it might have been uh, in Europe. And you also say that if it does get embedded, there is a deep conflict with both tradition and with uh, modern ideas of liberty. So if not nationalism, then what else? Um, and this is about nationalism being a vehicle for a nation state to achieve prosperity or a manifest destiny, whatever, right? So if not nationalism, then what else can you know bring people together and uh, get us places? There are, there are a couple of things we need to look at. Purely as a political question, we should be working more towards strengthening liberal democratic institutions such that as we talked about previously, the, the basic liberties of people, groups of people and various constituencies are protected. I think the economic question is fairly simple. Uh, the more mature an economic system, we have a greater unification of economic forces, economic direction. Nationalism I'm sure, rides piggyback on economic success and then claims that it was the driver of that success. I don't think that's what's happened anywhere in the world. Uh, it's the equilibrium of an economic system. If you can 
raise the equilibrium of an economic system, which happens due to correct policies and so on and so forth. I'm not an expert on this, but I can just give you a very broad uh, picture at, at this level. Um, I'm yet to see an instance where the ideology of nationalism might have necessarily resulted in better economics. There might be a case where you might have used some nationalist rhetoric to push a particular policy or not, but a policy is good or bad based on what it does. Right. And not because it is nationalist or not. Um, and then when it comes to the third vortex of, of our received traditions, it's important to start speaking in an analytical language about our traditions rather than do this talk of, of the national patrimony. Uh, in fact, both the, the progressive critics of tradition and the nationalist defenders of tradition uh, roughly seem to have the same description of the tradition. It's just that they give a moral spin which is negative and someone else gives a moral spin which is positive. Neither of them are interested in figuring out the tradition as a an intellectual um, resource. What does that entail is a question neither of them are interested in. Someone's interested in protecting it, someone's interested in attacking it. And that's slightly uh, beside the point. Right. But today's uh, requirements is what I would say. And, and uh, like you said before, uh, people think that the American nation is successful or even want to be a part of that, want to be an American because the United States of America has been prosperous, right? Has showed prosperity. Uh, it's not that people believed in the American idea intrinsically and therefore wanted to become American. It's because it was there was apparent success. Yeah. And then also the selling of things like the American dream and so on, sure. which might be a part of the national project. Sure. Uh, but it's because they were successful yeah. that people want to identify with that nation and even you know be a part sure. of it if sure. they need to. So even for us, as Indians, I mean, the more prosperous and successful we are, then more people will want to be Indian. Will want to be Indian. Um, I would, I would only uh, wish if uh, we looked at the success of America and learned the right lessons. Um, the right lessons uh, from American history is ensure that uh, democratic institutions are robust and are in a relationship of mutual check uh, of each other's excessive power. Um, do not suppress the creative energies of both communities, individuals, and the market. And do not trample on various kinds of liberties the people enjoy and the various kinds of customs that have built uh, societies. This is what America is in its best version. Right. And for some reason... We fail to understand that America, and we are uh, happier talking about uh, the the picture of America that it paints for itself. Right. The picture is a picture. The the thing is a thing. Thank you so much for coming on the Pragati Podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions or comments, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And hey, if you like the podcast and listen to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. It'll mean a lot to us. 
the pragati podcast is available on the ivm podcast app and pretty much every other podcast app and platform we are there everywhere filter coffee is a fascinating beverage you need to pick the right beans blend them in the right proportion roast them to perfection and slow brew at the right temperature to get the perfect cup which is exactly like great conversations as well you need to track down the most interesting minds get them into their zone and settle down for an unhurried unscripted chat and coffee for me is always 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 best enjoyed with friends i'm karthik nagarajan and do share my table as i meet some of the most interesting people i know and sit them down for a strong cup of coffee and an even stronger conversation join me every wednesday for a freshly brewed episode this is not frappe this is the filter coffee podcast hi i'm satyajit hi i'm racheta we are from the open library project and we host a podcast called paperback Paperback is a podcast where we engage with stalwarts and experts from various industries suggesting non-fiction titles that contributed to their journey in a big way. We've had guests like Anjali Raina, Dr. Marcus Rani, Dr. Swati Loda, Ambi Parmeswaran, Apurva Damani and many more on our show Paperback. Find new episodes every Wednesday on IVM Podcast app website or wherever you listen to podcasts.